Get the little ones, sit back, relax, and listen to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. The Red Panda Chronicles. The Middleman, Part One. June, nineteen forty. The streets of Toronto were full of life, and it was all beginning to feel a bit festive. It was one of the first hot evenings of the year, and after a long, wet spring cloistered inside. The people of the city found their comfortable nooks stifling and still. The heat was not yet oppressive, but it was enough to take a people who had been made reclusive since before the winter had descended, and push them out into the wide, busy world. Those who had easy access to an outside space went to it. Those who did not renewed acquaintances with neighbors and congregated, often over a small glass of something strong and cool. Porches, patios, verandas, and fire escapes all held their own small jovial gatherings. From one stoop, you might hear the jangle of a guitar; from another, the twill of a harmonica raised in merry tune; and from everywhere, the sound of laughter ringing through the darkness from a thousand tiny islands. The hope that filled the late spring air was palpable. The wartime factory jobs that were increasingly common paid more than anyone could remember from ten years of depression. And the conflict that was behind it all seemed a very long way away. The war was shaking Europe to its core, but here, just for one night, the people on those porches and stoops could be forgiven for feeling like everything was going to be all right after all. The night took on an air of jolly carnival, as if there was something exciting just around the corner, and the future looked as bright as the golden moon hanging above it all. The man in the bowler hat also looked forward to a bright tomorrow. Though he stood apart from his fellow citizens, deep in a pool of shadow that seemed to spread like poison from a damaged street lamp above, a forgotten island of shade, in a world that desperately wanted to be bright and merry, the man in the bowler hat fought the urge to look at his wristwatch. It would reveal nothing to him in this darkness, and the motion would transform him into a man who was waiting, a man off his rhythm, which was no doubt what they wanted, why they were late. But the man in the bowler hat was not one to surrender the high ground unless he had to. So he stood, an inscrutable expression upon his face and a briefcase in his hand, as if he was exactly where he wanted to be already. Eight minutes later, when a long dark sedan pulled up to the prearranged spot where he stood, he wore the same expression, unchanged. A tall man seated next to the driver opened his door and stepped out, reaching back to open the rear door for the man in the bowler hat. "Sorry, Mr. Renard," the tall man said, not sounding very sorry at all. We were running a little late. Were you? The man in the bowler hat said with an expression as he ducked into the back and settled into the fine leather seat. I hadn't noticed. The flying squirrel whooped with pure joy as she sailed across the downtown at speeds that made the traffic far below look like it was at a standstill. She also felt the hopeful note in the warm air of the evening, but her experience was fundamentally different from her fellow citizens. At street level, that air traveled as a gentle breeze, a refreshment in itself. In the heart of the city's downtown, those same breezes manifested as thermal walls of air bursting up unexpectedly from the man-made canyons created by the skyscrapers that surrounded her. 
The winds buffeted and tore at the unique gliding membranes built into her suit, rocketing her forward at breakneck speed. There was not another person alive who could survive those winds at that height, much less navigate across the city with them, and even if there were, it was inconceivable that another living soul could enjoy themselves so much doing so. She allowed herself to sink low as she approached her target, knowing there was a fierce updraft around the Durant building at the best of times, and that in conditions like today, it would force her into high elevations in an instant, throwing her to the rooftop like a thunderbolt, taking her quarry entirely by surprise. She narrowed the gliding membranes, keeping them taut but pouring on speed, the kinetic energy of her fall adding more power than the thermal updrafts could overcome, until she seemed destined to crash into the side of the building at breakneck speed. Suddenly she whipped the gliders open, taking the gale force of the updraft like a full sail, tearing her from her doomed flight path and tossing her skyward like a scrap of paper. She arched her neck and shoulders back and turned the forceful soar into a surprisingly controlled back somersault that reduced her speed, her ascent offset by the unfair advantage of gravity, exhorting her to an untimely meeting with the sidewalk far below. Long before such a moment there was an instant where the two opposing forces seemed perfectly cancelled out by one another, and it was at that precise instant when the flying squirrel, finding herself exactly even with her destination, stepped forward and landed on the mighty tower's roof as lightly and casually as a woman stepping off a city bus. Perfect. If only the red panda had been here to witness it, but he was nowhere to be seen. Very nice, his voice rumbled from everywhere and nowhere. The squirrel was surprised, but she refused to show it. I thought you were late, she teased. The deepening gloom of the evening seemed to break apart and resolve itself into the shape of a man dressed in an immaculate gray suit and hat. The blank white eyes within his crimson mask seemed to narrow as if quizzical. When am I ever late? he asked seriously. It's an interesting point, she admitted, stepping close to him and walking her fingers up his lapel to the perfect knot of his necktie. Hope you're up for some exercise. I've been stuck behind a desk all day. He raised an eyebrow. Kit Baxter, behave yourself? She grinned. No, no, she said before correcting herself with a wave of her gauntleted hand. Not just yet, anyway. I thought a few laps of the city on night patrol might make for a nice warm-up, since we don't have a case. That sounds wonderful, he nodded. Except, there was definitely an unless or an except in your tone somewhere, a wife knows. Who is spoiling my fun today and thereby risking life and limb? Mortimer Renard. She frowned. I thought he was dead. He shrugged. Apparently, he got better. Mortimer Renard smiled to himself. He was not the sort of man who deliberately cultivated a smile that anyone would notice. Some people did such things he knew, and it always puzzled him. Why announce your feelings, especially if they were true? Why give away valuable information for free? If his hosts thought it best to keep Renard off his game with childish tactics, why make an equally childish, defiant gesture of bonhomie to let them know they had failed? They had made him wait, exposed for the car to arrive, and now again in a well-appointed waiting room in an office tower downtown. It seemed clear that they wanted to make Renard sweat, to soften him up for the negotiation to come. Of course they had failed. The organization run by the man the papers called Archangel was widely feared, but not by Mortimer Renard. Renard had at one time or another done business with every criminal organization in the city and many further afield. Some of those people were legitimately scary. 
Most of them were capable of violence of a level that many people would consider psychotic. Renard had seen it himself with his own eyes. He trusted that more than reputation, that house of cards. So a little waiting would not rattle Mortimer Renard. But his hosts did not need to know that. Likewise, it would be best if they did not believe they had succeeded in putting their guest off his game with their simplistic tactics, lest they should fail to take him seriously, and his client's business interests suffer in the process. So Mortimer Renard sat quietly and thought about song lyrics. He was particularly fond of the music of Irving Berlin, and at times like these he would often sit quietly and try to recall as many of the maestro's lyrics as he could at their proper pace and rhythm within each song. He knew from long experience that if he were observed, which he almost certainly always was, he would project neither confidence nor fright. He was a man thinking about something else. No, more than that. He was a hole in the air. An unreadable blank card. At its worst, the effect would be neutral. At its best, the other party would place so much effort into reading him, they would themselves be thrown off their game. Renard paused at this. An amateur off his rhythm was an unpredictable thing, and these fifth colonists were certainly amateurs. Their motivations were less clear, less linear, than the men of crime, with whom Mortimer Renard had made it his life's work to negotiate. Best to be careful, perhaps even appear unnerved, to stoke this archangel's ego. A door at the other end of the waiting room opened, and one of the men who had brought him in the car emerged and waved him over. Renard stood and took a moment to smooth his sleeves and jacket front, to make a professional impression as well as to be seen doing exactly that. It played to his host's vanity for him to be deferential in a small way, and Renard had been doing this dance for so many years he scarcely noticed himself doing the steps. The room on the other side of the door was long enough that it appeared to be quite narrow, though it was wide enough to accommodate a long oval table. There were twelve men seated on either side, all masked with an identical crimson hood, all turned to face Mortimer Renard staring in silent judgment as Renard entered. Even to a professional, the effect was unsettling. In addition to the twenty-four men seated at the table, the two men who had brought him here were also present, each standing quietly beside one of the conference room's doors at the opposite ends of the room. These two men did not turn to Renard, but rather looked to the far end of the table where one final man stood, unmasked, but resplendent in long robes of green and gold. The man was tall and stout, with a distinguished head of silver hair combed neatly back in perfect detail. His hands folded before him, like a member of some strange clergy, were large but looked soft, and his nails were as immaculately buffed as any bank manager or well-appointed gangster. The gilded robes prevented Renard from any analysis of his host's clothing, but the twenty-four masked men were universally attired in finely tailored suits of a very conservative cut. If this were not a room full of the social elite of the city, all busily engaged in the betrayal of their country, then they were putting on a magnificent act. The man in the robes turned to the door with a gracious smile. Mr. Renard, he said, I am the Archangel. Renard nodded. Of course you aren't, he said. There was a murmur at the table, and the face of the man in the robes fell a little in spite of himself. No one spoke. Mortimer Renard stepped forward to the unoccupied space at the end of the table, opposite the supposed Archangel, but did not sit down. No man sees the face of the Archangel, Renard said, as if quoting a well-known passage. That is the word on the street, gentlemen, and it has been carefully cultivated like everything else about your movement. I cannot imagine that you would change that for me, no matter how successful our business dealings will become, and make no mistake, gentlemen, they will be. But the man who shows his face, the man who introduces himself as that august personage, gentlemen, 
That is the one person whom Archangel simply cannot be. No one spoke, but the men in the robes did smile. Renard gestured toward him and continued to speak. You stand here as the Archangel, no doubt at his bidding. I intend no offense, and am more than willing to play along for simplicity's sake and out of respect. I merely did not wish you to think I could be so easily deceived. Were I that much of a fool, I would be of very little use to you. The murmur at the table seemed to be in agreement. The man in the robes took back the authority he had lost, but even he seemed to be good-humored about it. "'You understand, I am certain,' he began, "'why we would feel the need for caution.' Renard nodded gently, but did not speak. "'Mortimer Renard is a man of a certain reputation,' the supposed archangel began. "'Not for violence, certainly,' Renard offered. "'No, but for association with those who practice it. "'I understand that you have made a career of negotiation "'with some of the city's most brutal crime syndicates.' Renard bowed slightly and made a small dismissive wave of his hand as though he had been flattered. A long and profitable career, yes, he said, negotiating on behalf of clients who lack, shall we say, the gravitas to deal with men of power. The phony archangel's smile washed away. A long career which by all accounts ended in the death of Mortimer Renard almost a year and a half ago. Renard shrugged. A pretended death is the preferred retirement package for a man in my line of work, he said. I have been quite comfortable. And what could possibly make you break that carefully cast illusion now to meet with us? Renard tilted his head slightly as if searching for just the right words. Because, my dear Archangel, he began, there is a great difference between quite comfortable and very comfortable. There was a ripple of well-mannered laughter around the conference table. These were terms of negotiation which these men could understand. The man in the robes was curious. You call me Archangel, he said, though you are certain that I am not he. Renard took in the room. No. But I think he is close. Perhaps he is one of this distinguished company, or perhaps he listens from another room with a hidden dictaphone. Renard swept the room with a gesture. Perhaps there is no such person. Perhaps all of you together make up Archangel. Gentlemen, please rest assured, this is a mystery which I have no interest in solving. I am simply here to represent the interests of my client, who is most desirous to remain anonymous, Renard said with a smile. Your organization has a reputation for taking what you want, and certainly you have that power. But sometimes such a policy makes little fish skittish, and in so doing you are denied treasures beyond the dream of avarice. The man in the robes placed his hands upon the table and leaned forward as if speaking to Renard in confidence in spite of the great distance between them. And what treasure have you brought, Mr. Renard? Only the fondest wish of every man who approaches our age, gentlemen, Mortimer Renard said, opening his case and preparing to go to work. I bring you the gift of time itself. <laughs> This is an urgent message from Cypher. On undergoing various uh, undergoings for the evil plan, it has come to my attention that these children, these voices, have risen mutiny against us. This, of course, is suboptimal. They must be stopped at all costs. I think I speak for all mankind when 
I say, the evil plan must continue. <laughs> yes, it must. <laughs> anyway, we have set up a trap for these kid agents, and they will be dealt with soon enough. Don't leave me. Just listen. I'm just gonna cut one of them! No, wait! Why haven't they reported in for the past two days? Two of your agents have been injured in the line of duty. Oh my god, Josh, are you okay? Miss, miss, can you please step back? Say something comforting to Josh. Better you than me? Many believe Wordtastic Podcast to be the greatest podcast of all time. And season two bears no exception. We'll have more action. More laughs. <laughs> what is wrong with you? More drama.